Hey, Brian, I got some exciting information for you about last week's oh, I... episode. Before we get into talking about this week's episode, I got to tell you about something that came out of last week's episode about Chameleon Street. Are you I'm ready? I'm excited. What happened? So when I sent Skinner the link for the podcast, which he loved, he was very complimentary about it. I was like, I looked up Wendell B. Harris Jr. on IMDb Pro and there's nothing. There's no contact form whatsoever. And he was like, you know, I actually have his home number in Flint, Michigan. No cell phone, just a home number. And he gave it to me. I was like, well, how'd you get this? He's like, I have my ways. <laughs> and I'm like okay and it, it was like, i mean i actually reached out to you and was like hey uh do you do you want to call him and you're like nope <laughs> you can do it <laughs> you can do it if you want it's a little bit intimidating so yeah, uh very intimidating so you know i got myself in in a good headspace sat down had a cup of coffee and i was ready feeling good about myself called up and said Hello, may I speak to Wendell B. Harris? And they said, you got the wrong number. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, I said, okay, so, uh, uh, okay, and goodbye. And then uh, I reached out to Skinner, and he's like, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's the right number. <laughs> so maybe they're just protecting him. Do you want me to do some more research? I was like, leave the guy alone. If you, if you... He clearly... <laughs> He's bit, like, you know, maybe like part of what we talked about was like he maybe he's just very embittered about the whole thing and doesn't want anyone to talk to him about this movie ever again. Oh, I don't feel like that. I feel it's more like it, this doesn't feel like a bitter thing. I feel it. See, I imagine that he's just he's the guy who's focused on the work, whatever that yeah. work. I don't know what his work is. Yeah. Maybe he's, you know, he may be, uh, you know, you know, we, we in the last episode, we we sort of made it out to be like. Everyone was against him, but maybe he was, he became a secret agent man. And now, <laughs> now he's, he's working on much bigger projects than, than movies. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Maybe it is like a confessions of a dangerous mind sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were all looking at his movie. He was over here doing something else. <laughs> yeah, I like to th I like to think that I like to think that. Either way, the point is that the that the mystery of Wendell B. Harris Jr. continues. <laughs> Love it. So, so uh, and now we have to talk about our dearly departed international man of mystery, Sean Connery. Yeah, it's it's interesting because we did this episode thinking it was going to be timed with the new Daniel Craig movie, and then because of the state of the world that movie's been pushed till till sometime next year and so now we don't have the new bond movie but we still have the great old ones and we also didn't know that sean connery was going to pass away like what a week ago so in a way perfect timing in a you know in a sad you know circumstance you sound incredible you sound too happy about the passing of Sean Connery, Brian. He lived a long, great life. He was 90 or whatever. Like, you know, when, when someone over like 80 passes away, it's sad. But at the same time, I, I think it's good just to embrace their legacy and look at the great things that they've made, you know. So that's what that's what we did with this episode. It's true. It's true. Um, you know, once I was when I was in high school, we went on a trip to Edinburgh, Edinburgh in Scotland. And uh there was an there was an article in the paper about Sean Connery, and I'm sure that 
it was just a normal, you know, thing. But to me, I, I always felt like they write about Sean Connery in Scotland every day. Every day? Like what he had for breakfast, just what he, what he saw on TV. Yeah, like... <laughs> Well, it's, it's it's cool that they uh, his wife yesterday said that they're going to scatter his ashes. But this was his request, his deathbed request: scatter his ashes in Scotland and in the Bahamas. So, where he came from, and then the Bahamas to me is very like James Bond's, you know, where he hung hung out, you know. So I think that's nice. Wow, well, you know, you maybe you can have it all, Sean Connery. Maybe you can. <laughs> uh, well, before we get into talking about Never Say Never Again, which we spoke about, uh, as you say, about a month and a half ago, I wanted to mention one thing that I realized since. I recently watched the 1959 film Our Man in Havana, starring Alec Guinness and Noel Coward and Ernie Kovacs and Burl Ives. Quite a cast. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and... Uh, and it's just so it's it's a it's it's a British espionage, I guess, kind of a thriller of its time, and you can just see from watch. It's a really good film, and the the agents even have double O code names. Like uh, Noel Coward teaches Alec Guinness that his code number is five nine two zero zero stroke five because he was. Uh, he was recruited by Noel Coward, who's five nine two double zero. So they had they even have double O's, but they have really boring double O's. And not as sexy. And they just are these, you know, gentlemen English spies who are very, you know, everything, everything's dialed down a little bit. Even if they kill someone, it's like they're, they're horrified. Like what is what am, what is my hand doing? <laughs> How rude. And <laughs> and only just a few years later to imagine that James Bond bursts on the scene and you can see why he, particularly why Connery, was such a revelation. He just seems like more of a man than all four of those guys put together. <laughs> well, maybe not Burl Ives. He's a real man. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, but even in that, he's like, he's he's very cuddly. Like, yeah, yeah, that just I'd love for to encourage people to check out that film and then imagine that because you watch it and you feel like this was filmed 20 years before James Bond, not three years before James Bond, <laughs> two and a half years before James Bond. Like you just yeah. it, you just see it's sort of like listening to music before the Beatles and then you hear the Beatles and you're like, that has there has to be like 10 years difference between that. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> That's the difference between 1960 and 1963, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, it's going to be fun. To, well, it was fun talking with you about Sean Connery, and I hope people mm -hmm. enjoy listening to us talk about probably the greatest Bond film, Never Say Never Again. <laughs> Are you ready to get into Let's it? Let's do it. Let's do it. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? 
Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to The World is Wrong Podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Never say never again. <laughs> I'm excited about this one. I didn't I didn't expect us to do a Bond movie, and then it just occurred to me that the world is very wrong about this movie. Hold on a second, Brian. What kind of podcast is this? This is The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we champion films the world is wrong about. I'm one of your hosts, Andros Jones. I'm Brian Connolly, the other host. And... You're so excited to talk about this film that you interrupted my intro. So just tell us about it, man. <laughs> Go for it. Well, you know, we're, this is coming out the week that supposedly the new Bond movie is coming out, of course, because we're still in the uh, age of COVID. Wait, the, the Tom Hardy out. Bond film is already coming out? Tom Hardy? <laughs> Didn't you hear? He's going to be the new what? Bond. Tom Hardy got no. cast. Yeah. You're lying. There's no. no way. Yeah, no, I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> late, <laughs> late super you, late. You derailed this whole podcast because he just blew my mind. Super no late breaking true. news because this was hot, uh, hot news, I guess. Not even hot, that hot news in September when we were recording this. But by November, <laughs> you all know this. Tom Hardy is going to be the next James Bond. Yes, but we're talking. I, I understand. Oh, go on. They're going to change that. There's no way. <laughs> I think Idris Elba should be the new boss. Right. We all we all were hoping, but you uh, know. Anyway, okay. sorry, sorry. <laughs> Tom Hardy. <laughs> Thomas Hardy, the writer of Tess, like he's got to be yeah. hundreds of years old. How can he play Bond? Bond of the uh, Durbervilles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, so we're doing never say never again, and there might be some people out there who are like. Wait a minute! I have the Bond box set. That's not in the box set. Well, yeah, that's why the world is one of the many reasons why the world is wrong about it. So, Never Say Never Again um, is the Sean Connery comeback Bond from 1983, released the same year as Octopussy, the Roger Moore, the more official Bond. And the world uh, is wrong about it because it just this should be I'm like why. Why leave this movie out? Why is this the the sad, you know, like stepchild that you hide in the attic of the Bond movies? Like this movie, like the plot is been, it's, the plot is exactly what you expect from a Bond movie. There's some nuclear warheads that get hijacked. A bad guy is gonna blow up some things as for a ransom. James Bond has to come in and save the day. There's you know sexy women. He drinks martinis. You know, like he you know arcs his eyebrows to something clever. He's got little gadgets. It's just like every other Bond movie. Or is it? But <laughs> no, I don't think but the so. world is wrong to leave this movie out. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, this is a... Okay, so obviously, as as evidenced by my ability to blow your mind with a, a piece of casting trivia, any, whenever we wade into the area of James Bond, some... some new rules apply and some old rules about film just don't apply. I've kind of, as in, in working on this, I've kind of realized that Bond is really, is really its own thing. 
It's totally its own genre. It's so weird. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the just Bond in general. What is your, you know, what's, you're obviously a Bond guy. Yeah. How did that I, happen? I grew, I grew up with it. You know, like I think a lot of boys my age growing up in the 80s, like we loved Star Wars, we loved Indiana Jones, and we loved James Bond. And Bond in particular was like even more just like present just because both my parents really loved the James Bond movies. And my mom, when I was a kid, joined the James Bond of the Month Club, where she got sent once a month a new VHS tape of a James Bond movie. And they were sent to us in chronological order of when the movies were made. So, like, every month we would look forward to the new whatever Bond movie. And this, and this is before I really knew what it was. And so... I was deep into the Sean Connery ones, and then all of a sudden we got this weird George Lazenby one, and I was like, who's this guy? This movie's great. Then got into Roger Moore, and Roger Moore was like my Bond. Like, he was Bond. He was the Bond's favorite in our family. Like, we all loved Roger Moore, like, the most, and my brothers included. Like, we just watched those more than the Sean Connery ones. Sean Connery might have been a better Bond, but something about the Roger Moore movies were just more fun and more silly and more just a good time. And then my mom stopped the Bond of the Month Club once Timothy Dalton started because she hated anything after Roger Moore. And we never, I, so I never saw the Timothy Dalton <laughs> until later. Uh, and my mom doesn't even want to watch the new one. She's just like, Roger Moore is the end of Bond, the end. But we would watch them over and over and over and over and over again, like so many times, more than probably most movies. And even as a grown-up, I've probably watched these movies more than any other movie. Like I got the Blu-ray set for Christmas three years ago, and I'm already on my like second viewing all the way through of all the movies again. Like it's definitely something I'm obsessed with. And and you're right. It's just like I don't care how terrible a Bond movie may be. I'm gonna watch it all a lot. <laughs> I'm gonna be really into it. Um, how about you? Uh. Well, yeah, I, so Bond, so my first Bond was also Roger Moore. Well, no, no, your first Bond was really Sean Connery, but for me, it was Roger Moore. It was a spy who loved me. My mother made the mistake of letting me know how horrified she was that I was getting into Bond. And so <laughs> I started reading all the books because it was sort of like, it was just like, yeah, I, I, it was just, it was a way to be, to be both bad and good. Like she couldn't get mad at me for reading. <laughs> and so I remember during summers I would read, I would just read any bond book I could get a hold of. I feel like I read them all, uh, uh -huh. or at least most of them, all the Ian Flemings when I was before I was a soft uh, junior in high school, you know, maybe before I was even a sophomore in high school. Um, but yeah, it was probably more like a middle school kind of th time that I was into it. So like it, it was definitely an adolescent boys thing. And I can't say that I've always kept up. I, I feel like there are, there are still probably a, a few Bond films that I haven't seen. Huh. I think I might not have seen A View to a Kill. Oh, man, that was great. <laughs> just like the 80s, I, I most like this is I had the same thing around music from from that era. The early to mid 80s was a time when I was sort of catching up. I was doing a lot of I was watching 
older films and older music. I was trying to get myself up to speed, it felt like. So a lot of, like, just Duran Duran in a Bond film. Who cares? Uh, I don't care about any of that. Um, but, uh, but I have, you know, but I've definitely followed them. And uh, Daniel Craig's a pretty great Bond. Um, yeah. but, uh, but it's... At the same time, let's so talking about this idea. I really watching Never Say Never and then doing some research on for this. I realized that I don't even know if I like James Bond films, but I do feel like I need to watch them. There are <laughs> like I'm already bought in, and so I'm going to be interested. Like I would so much rather I I would rather watch the next eight iterations of Knives Out with Daniel Craig than another James Bond film. But at the same time, I have really strong feelings about Daniel Craig as James Bond. I know I feel it's like James Bond is almost like the American presidency. Like I hate it, but I can't take my, I can't stop. I can't stop thinking about it. And just like the president, thankfully, it's like if you don't like a bond, eventually there'll be another one. Well, let's hope. And you know, so like, <laughs> would it be great if we, if America and the world could vote for who's bond? If we actually could, like, if there was like every four years someone like made a like put together a whole thing, and we had to like vote for people who'd be bond. I think that'd be pretty good. I think that should be the future of bond, a democ- democracy. Well, yeah. Right now, you're feeling a, your your candidate lost in the bond stakes. <laughs> You're like, oh, I'm gonna have to deal with Tom Hardy for the for how many more Bond films? Sorry, man. It's like, yeah, you're. It's just like I agree that not all of them are good. In like every Bond movie, even the good ones, always has that weird like last hour where it's just a bunch of people running around. Yeah, and I always kind of tune out in that last hour because every Bond movie is over two hours long. Some way up, well over two hours, and there's and even like Goldfinger, which is like one of the best, like has that end where it's just a bunch of guys in jumpsuits with machine guns running around, like they run around in like some sort of famous location or you know fortress of, of the of the bad guy, and you definitely cut your brain kind of tunes that out because you're not getting bonds with the fun drinks or the women or the gadgets. It's more just like it just kind of turns into Rambo a little. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> it just gets a little dull. But I don't care. I'll watch. I'll just keep watching it. So, <laughs> so you, have you seen Never Say Never again before? Or is this the first time you've watched it? I think it's the first time I watched it. Like I said, I was a uh, I was a Roger Moore Bond guy, and I did go back and and get into the. Sean Connery bonds, but again, it was also 1983. It was just a time when I think my attention was elsewhere. For some reason, James Bond is always tied up for me in sort of like because my of my mom's reaction. I'm sort of embarrassed about my falling for the Bond thing, and I think just the title Octopussy at the time was just too much. I was like, I. And I think the the and I might even have seen Octopussy, but Octopussy and Never Say Never. And this is something else we should also say about. So if you were a an adolescent boy around, you know, when these films were coming out, they always had some sort of coverage in Playboy magazine, which uh-huh. yeah. you know you were always trying to find a way to get a hold of a Playboy magazine. 
it's a it's a totally it was a totally different world, people. There was no internet. <laughs> if you got a hold of one of like if you could, and it was you couldn't just walk into a store and buy one. They were like you had to be old enough, you had to be eighteen. So if you could get a hold yeah. of one, um, it was well used. Let's just say that. And uh, <laughs> and so a lot of my experience of Bond films is not even the the films. It's just pictures of the pretty ladies who were in those films. Sorry, I yeah. know that sounds terrible, but uh, to some people, but it's just a part of being an uh, an adolescent boy. And yeah, so I, again, it, that's a way more answer than you needed. But no, I didn't. Say, I didn't see Never Say Never at the time. Although I probably did see pictures from it in magazines. So I bet Playboy maybe didn't endorse this one because they had such a time with the official series, and this is such the bastard child of the whole franchise. And actually, let's backtrack. Let's get into this movie a bit as to why. what, Like, why is this movie the left out one? Well, actually, first, so it's, it's, wait, wait a second. Well, let, let's do this in order. Tell us about, give, tell us about, I'm going to play, play a clip and then tell us about Never Say Never Again. Okay. Welcome to Trapland, sir. Thank you. My word, they don't make them like this anymore. Right. It's still in pretty good shape. This way, sir. Your body's got enough scar tissue for an entire regiment. Right. But it's still in pretty good shape. Uh, we'll be the judge of that, Mr. Bond. Our job is not just to rehabilitate you, it's to re-educate you. I want to open your mind to the virtues of nutrition, proper exercise, meditation, and hopefully spiritual enlightenment. I'd like you to see the irrigologist at four, have a colonic at five, and then you can cut along to the light dining room and have a refreshing cup of parsley tea. Mr. Bond, I need a urine sample. If you could fill this beaker for me. From here? All right, so it, this is an interesting movie because, it is, yes, it is a remake of Thunderball. So if you've seen Thunderball, and then watch this, you'll get those definitely moments that ring familiar, especially people's names and the basic plot. But why is that? Why does this exist? So basic, when, when Thunderball came out, it was not based on an infamous book. There was a, back when they were trying to make Bond movies before Dr. No, Ian Fleming worked with two other writers, Kevin McClory and Jack uh, Whittingham, and they wrote a script that was basically Thunderball. And didn't happen, the movie didn't happen, so then Ian Fleming took that script and adapted it into the book of Thunderball. And then they made the movie of Thunderball. And back in the 60s, the other two writers were like, wait a minute, that's part of our idea. And there was a lawsuit that happened. And the producers of the Bond movie were like, well, this can't be good. Like, let's just say, yeah, give them credit in the movie credits and just say, yes, this is based on their idea. And they could own like 50% of this or whatever, because we don't want them to like throw a fit and ruin our movie. So they gave these guys like, yeah, you helped make this movie too. But then that meant that there was one Bond movie, one Bond book, if you would, that had other people who had the rights to it who weren't just Ian Fleming. And so then in the early 70s, these, these other writers tried to make, keep making, like, well, I own the rights to this movie, Thunderbolt, let's make it again. Like, Bond movies make money. So even as early as this early 70s, they were trying to make this again, which is crazy because Thunderbolt came out in, what, 66, I think, uh, or 65, 66, and 
to have a movie come out with four years later, the same movie is pretty funny. But luckily, it took them until the early 80s. So at least there's a good, like, 17-year difference before you get this. And then even when this came out, uh, Eon, who is the group, the group, the company uh, that makes the official Bond movies, tried to shut this down, tried to stop this from coming out. Because they were like, no, no, we're the James Bond people. We make the movies the way we want to. We can't have this exist. But they couldn't do anything about it because legally, uh, these other writers had the rights to this idea because of the original story. Um, and that's why in 1983, if you're a Bond fan, it was actually a great year because you got two Bond movies, like you said, Octopussy and Never Say Never Again, in the same year. Uh, and, and, the, and this isn't a spoof. It's not like when uh, You Only Live Twice and the Casino Royale spoof came out in 67. Like, that was a spoof of Bond movies. So that was fine existing at the same time as a Connor movie. But this is like two true actual Bond movies at the same time. And the people who, the, the Broccoli family, who are still making the official Bond movies, they're very, they're very controlling of like how, like they're, they very much like want to be behind like what we see as Bond. Like they're, it's not like other franchises where they kind of let other people take a chance at it and see what happens. Like they are very much like, involved in the script and involved in the handpicking the director and the bond. And it's like such a, like it's just such their baby. And it's a little too bad because it would be great if there were other bonds and other people taking a shot at it and making it like very different, but alas, that is not to be except for never to say never again. Um, and it's definitely, you can tell right off the bat, it's not like the other bond movies. There's something off about it. There's something different. It's not. You can tell that it's not part of the same family as like the, the quote unquote official ones. Could you tell that when you watched it? You're like, this is there's something different here. Oh yeah. Well, just, I mean, first off, there's just, you don't have the music. Yeah. Like imagine Jaws without the music. It's not Jaws. Yeah. And Bond without that music is. I mean, yeah. Just the opening. The opening itself felt way more like just sort of like a like a an action film from the early 80s than like uh -huh. a bond film yeah in that in that in the way that a bond opening is part of it might be the best part of the movie of a bond movie yeah. is like is whatever cool thing they do and then that music kicks in and whichever bond it is walks into that circle and shoots you and you're like, okay, I'm like, that's, that's the feeling. It's like the, the, the opening yeah. crawl of a star Wars movie and the star Wars yeah. music without that, you know, the music is so crucial to it. So yeah, yes, it definitely feels different. Continue. I'm sorry. Get, I get, I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Well, it's just weird. Like the opening is weird because if, if you're right, like it's usually like a little mini mission and it's usually something fun or funny. But this is just James Bond killing people, like not even a fun way, just shooting people with a machine gun. And you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is not normally the opening of the James Bond movie. Usually he does like some skiing stunt and maybe someone will die in a funny way. But this is straight up just like murder. <laughs> it, just, it feels more like a Chuck Norris movie. Yeah. He's just like killing, killing a bunch of people. <laughs> and, and then the theme song is fine. But it doesn't. It doesn't feel like a Bond movie theme song. It doesn't have the. You don't have the opening credits with like the interesting images or whatever. It's just sort of like, huh, what is what is this? 
And then it is shocking right off the bat to see Sean Connery look kind of old. Because this, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this is the only movie post-70 where he didn't have a facial hair and wasn't bald. Because like he just embraced that he was bald and was just a beautiful bald man in every movie post-70 before this and every movie after this. And he usually has a mustache or a goatee or a beard. But here you have clean-shaven with toupee on Sean Connery, and it just makes him look older. He looks like John Saxon. That's who he looks like in this movie. <laughs> So it starts off, it's an action film, the Chuck Norris-style action film starring John Saxon. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm watching it. I love the things you suggest, Brian, because I because that's the point where I think in a normal situation, I might be like, uh, okay, um, it's a Bond film. But I, that's when I get on the edge of my seat and I'm like, why does Brian love this so much? Now, <laughs> now there's a reason to watch this film. I want to watch every... Like, what is it? Because this this might be bad. But then it's like, can a Bond film even be bad? Like, no, they're all bad. <laughs> they're all bad. Or they're all good. Right. They're all, good. they're all. I would say no Bond movie could ever win Best Picture, but I don't know. Like, the, the Daniel Craig ones are really, really good. Like, Casino Royale and Skyfall are both great. Like, Skyfall won an Oscar for cinematography. So you have a Bond movie winning an Oscar for best cinematography. So it is possible to make like a really, really good one. But even like the dregs, like the bottom of the barrel Bonds, or the poorly made ones, or the perplexing ones like Never Been Ever Again, there's just such a, there's interesting things in there. It, sa it says a lot about when the movie came out, and also it's just sort of like, its own, but at the same time, it's its own, like you said, it's its own genre, it's its own little bubble. You can't compare it. You can't say Never Say Never Again is better than, you know, like, you know, Out of Africa or worse. It's just like, it's a different, a different creature. So I just want to, I want to just point out to you that in recounting the plot of this film, there's more story in the rights surrounding this film than in the actual film. All we know is that it starts off with no Bond music and a John Saxon-looking Bond killing a bunch of people. Tell and us more. Tell like, us more, Brian. These, these, these nuclear warheads are, are hijacked. And they have to, for some reason, they're like, well, James Bond has to be the one to figure this out. Even though he's old, we need to dust him off and we need him, he needs to, we need to have this 55-year-old running around and solving this case. and But first, Bond has to go to like the health spa to get back into shape and to prove that he can do it. So then, instead of going right into some action scene, we have Sean, Sean Connery, James Bond, hanging out in a health spa, which is beginning also happens in Thunderbolt, but in this it's funnier because it's more like the old man having to like prove that he still can like be strong and be a secret agent. And it's just, this, this is my favorite part of the whole movie. Of course it is, because, because it's, it's like if Blake Edwards directed a Bond film. It's, it's, it's middle-aged comedy. Very... <laughs> yeah, go on. Yeah, it's just like, you know, it's it's very slapsticky, and it does, it definitely, you could totally see it in a Pink Panther movie. You can totally see it being like Dudley Moore having to do this at the beginning of some Blake Edwards movie. Because it's like, him, like everybody's younger than Bond. And it's everybody being like, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to eat this. And he's like, okay. And he even sneaks in, like in an 80s summer camp movie, 
he sneaks in a suitcase full of like all the James Bond goodies that he's not allowed to eat. So he's got a suitcase full of like vodka and foie gras and caviar. <laughs> it's like he sneaks into his room of this health spa. <laughs> and then the highlight of it is this fight he has. He has this big fight with this big guy, this big stuntman. And I swear he looks like the stuntman. Like he's one of the step with one of the people in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, he's yeah, like, he was. The, he's the guy who gets uh, gets hit with the propeller. Yeah, same guy, and it's just like this amazing stunt. And this is what it really feels like a Blake Edwards thing. It's basically them just trashing this health spa. It's just like James Bond getting picked up and thrown into shelves after shelves of like medical equipment and bottles, and they're breaking through doors. And it's just totally insane. <laughs> and it's so, and you know, like Sean Connery's not even like fighting well. He's just getting the crap. Yeah, he he's a him. wimp. He's, okay, <laughs> that's the next part, next aspect of this that's not like a Bond film. Bond is a wimp. He is, he is getting, he runs away and he gets beaten up. Oh, by the way, that, that actor is named Pat Roach. And yes, he was, he, right. he was in, uh, Raiders, and I think think he was in something else that was like uh, a big deal around that time. But anyway, go on. And then the scene ends with him throwing a liquid in the bad guy's face, and the guy like like reacts like it's acid, and it turns out that it's James Bond's urine sample. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like, I guess because of the amount of alcohol he drinks. It burns like it's coming through urine. You just kind of go yuck, but it's like it burns this guy's face. That's not even. That's the second James Bond has double O piss (laughs) joke. There's a whole thing where she, where he's being asked to give us urine sample, and she's the by the nurse, and he's like from across the room, like (laughs) like what old guys brag about is like how how strong their stream is. It's supposed to be his jizz that's powerful. Why is his piss? <laughs> you know, it's just the fluids of James Bond has a magic power. Oh, and just uh, just because it's fun, uh, Pat Roach, his uh, screen debut was in Clockwork Orange as a uncredited milk bar bouncer, and then he was also in Barry Lyndon. So, not bad. Oh, wow. Not bad. A little Kubrick time with yeah. this. Uh, and so this movie was produced by Jack Schwartzman, and he is Jason Schwartzman's father, and he's married to he was married to Talia Shire, who of course is Francis Ford Coppola's sister. And it's rumored that such great moments that we're talking about were maybe thought of by Francis Ford Coppola. He was brought in supposedly to do a, a rewrite on this, do a pass on this uh, for the favor of his uh, brother-in-law. Uh, and I hope that he came up with that line of pain from across the room. I hope that was a Francis Ford Coppola touch. Uh, <laughs> and, and it occurred to me that I also have my director's all podcast where we're currently doing Coppola. We're now in 1981. So that means like three weeks after this podcast airs, I'm going to have to do this again. <laughs> I'm going to talk about this movie again. But that's okay because I love it. I can't imagine that we're going to leave anything on the table for you. but uh... I know. You know, good luck. He watched things again. You never know. Um, and so he he gets that he, he he gets a clean bill of health and gets involved basically in the plot of these warheads being stolen. And it, this is when you get kind of into the thunderballness of it. It's like 
It's stolen. Uh, there's Blofeld, who with Spectre has this plan. Uh, Blofeld is played by Max von Sydow in this movie, which is very exciting. Like he went from uh, Emperor Ming and Flash Gordon to this, so he's really playing all the fa- uh, famous heavies of uh, sci-fi and fantasy and action in the early 80s. Once a great actor in Bergman movies, now playing Blofeld and never say never again. And he doesn't like it weird because I feel in other Bond movies, they always kind of hide Blofeld at first. And in this one, he's just kind of out in the open and being like, yep, yeah, I'm Blofeld. Here's my cat. Yep, yeah, I'm the bad guy in charge of this thing. I think that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you feel like, do you feel like, and we'll, we'll, we're going to keep just going through this, I guess, but do you feel like uh, this film is hostile towards Bond? Like, there are times when it feels like it is actively giving the finger to the broccolis. Yeah. I I mean, it must be. I mean, like you can't not put out another Bond movie and not have a little bit of like a, oh yeah, well, uh, well, here's my Bond movie. Oh yeah, you do that. Well, here's me doing my thing. It's like, oh, you have Blofeld. We haven't seen Blofeld in the official series, like since in Fear Rides Only, which came out a few years before this, Blofeld's in the teaser at the beginning. You don't see the actor. He just gets, he just, you see the back of his head and he just like James Bond does some like pranks on him. But here they're like, oh yeah? Well, for our Blofeld, we have award-winning, you know, brilliant actor, Max von Sydow. And we're not going to hide him behind some sheet. We're going to show that we have this amazing actor. And we have Kim Basinger as our Bond girl. And we have Bernie Casey as our Felix Leiter. And it really does feel like we're going to do it better than you, even though everybody uh, thought that they didn't. <laughs> but they had, they had the drive. That they, they, they had Sean Connery. It doesn't matter well, that okay. Moore was the current popular one. They had Sean Connery. Yeah, they are the better one. But here's the, is it that? It's, there's a part of it that feels like, and maybe the better one, but it also feels like, like not like, oh, we can do this better. It's like, you know the way you do it? That the way sucks. So we're going to like if James Bond <laughs> is going to do this. We're going to have him do the exact opposite, not because it's yeah. better, but because it's not you. So, if you know, if you don't like it when James Bond falls down, we're going to have James Bond fall down a lot. You know, if you don't like it when you know, you know what I mean? It's just sort of like there's. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah, it's like this scene it's hostile the towards scene Bond. In, in, the, in the health spa. It's way more slapsticky than anything in Octopussy. Like they're just kind of saying, like, "Oh, you got all a little more serious again." Well, we're going to go back to the silly shit. <laughs> and but let's not be—I mean, Octopussy is a silly movie, is pretty yeah. goofy. But if you watch it, like I watched them back to back, and there is something—the part of me that is, you know, that has bought into Bond relaxed and felt a little relieved when I was watching uh, <laughs> Octopussy. There, like, oh, like multi- probably 10 times during Never Say Never Again, I just had to be like, what the fuck? What the f-? <laughs> Like, I'm alone in my room watching a movie that I'm not liking. And yet there'll be things, and I'll be like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's... Well, what were some of the th- I'm curious, what were the, some of the things that blew your mind while watching this movie? Uh, the the uh, video game showdown? Oh, with Klaus Maria Brandauer, <laughs> that was it's uh, so good. that was it's, well. It's so this, yes, it's good, but it's also terrible. It's sort of like, what are you? Th- James Bond's gonna have a video game showdown. 
Oh no! It, it works. I think that it, part it, is... it does. Get, it's having seen it, it's good. But when it starts, you're like, "You've got to be kidding me!" Movie. James Bond is. They're gonna sit. These fancy guys are gonna sit there playing like a really like a Space Invaders type game, and I'm supposed to buy that this is that this is cool. What I don't like. It's so pandering to 1983, and love, but it's it's good. Know. It's shot well. Okay, sorry. I just let me let me just get into how to my because my reaction when I saw that I just thought, yeah, I just thought I I it was that this mix of admiration and hostility that I had most like throughout this whole movie. Like I was like, oh fuck you, movie. This is terrible. I but I have to see how it plays out. And then uh, you're gonna there's some really good things about it. Now you say the good things. <laughs> Part where they play the game is called what domination is that what it's called whatever uh, they uh it's it's sort of like risk kind of or battleship in a way and it's definitely like very atari this is 1983 computer graphics where it's just green lines feels very tron but i love i love that they treat it like the, when he plays baccarat in a movie it's just sort of like yeah you're gonna work at this fancy party we're all wearing bow ties. We're drinking, like, you know, John Perrion. We're going to sit at this beautiful old table and play this ridiculous Atari game. It doesn't quite make sense. You have to, like, zap country. Like, you're taking over country, and you're taking turns zapping it. And then it has the added bonus of you get electric shocks from the from the uh, joystick if you whenever you lose, uh, which is that added James Bond element of like, and then James Bond is like getting really good at it, but he's getting shot a lot. And he's not letting go, and he's getting all these shots, and the shock builds the more you lose. It's so ridiculous, but I, I just like I love that they like because there's no other Bond movie where they're trying to make him play a video game or anything. Like this <laughs> no. is very much them. No. And this movie has that I think more than because like the other Bond movies, the official ones always try to be cutting edge on top of like. This is how pretty women look. This is the kind of car that like he would be driving in this year, and this is the kind of clothes and blah blah blah. But I love that this one really leans into the eightiesness of it, which is probably another reason why it was it's been more forgotten about because it doesn't age well exactly. <laughs> it's oh yeah, not timeless. It's not timeless like sixties Bond or seventies Bond. It just feels like oh they're playing a weird Atari game. Oh like Kim Basinger is doing this sort of like flash the dance, flash aerobic dance. Yeah. dance. Sort of thing where she has this studio where she does this sort of, uh, you know, like aerobics dancing. And what's weird is so the bad guy, uh, so this Largo is the bad guy in this movie, played by another great award winning actor, Klaus Maria, uh, how do you say his last name? Brandauer. Real legit actor playing the bad guy. He has this little lair on a boat where he has this little control room where he can, like, you know, do his world domination. But then he had built. A side thing that opens up for a two-way mirror just to watch whoever's going to use this dance studio on his boat just to be a creep. And no, no, no. I, wait, I don't think it's just to watch whoever. I think it's because like he has. Sorry, I got to jump in here. Get get keep you correct with the story. He he is with Kim Basinger, and she seduced her, and she thinks he's her boyfriend. But he also has had her brother killed. She doesn't know this. She used her he used her brother to get the the nuclear weapons and he killed him. So he's so Kim Basinger is kind of his kept toy. And so he has yeah. his control room and then he has a, 
like I just want to make it out like he's creeping on everybody. He's just creeping on Kim Basinger. But you don't know when this room was made. Did he make it before he met Kim Basinger? Maybe he's just like I have this dance studio in my boat. No, no. Whatever lady it's... I'm with will be using this. Room. <laughs> no, this, this film is so tied. He went out and saw the movie Flashdance and was like, <laughs> "That's what I need—a girlfriend like that." And so we went. Then that's. <laughs> That's how I went and got Kim Basinger, and he's like, how will I get her? Well, I must have a cage for her on my ship. Build build me a dance studio and stock it with leggings and ripped sweatshirts. Um, but so that's some of, more, some of the more ridiculous stuff. In oh, no, 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 no. There's so much more ridiculous stuff. I mean, that is some of the most ridiculous stuff, but there's a lot. Yeah. But then there's like crazy, like the gadgets in this are way weirder. And they feel kind of dorkier. Yeah. Like when him and, when him and Felix Leiter are flying in these sort of rocketeer jetpacks to whatever next Those adventure. are terrible. And they look so <laughs> bored. They both look <laughs> bored and embarrassed. They're clearly just hanging off of cranes. Like they're not, like the way they're shot, like you don't ever really see them in the air. So they're just being lowered in some sort of crane with smoke coming and they both look so bored and embarrassed in what's supposed to be a really like I don't even know yeah again that was another what the fuck are they like, but what's great about like that and then like there's also they're just like silly lines and things it's like the thing about a James Bond movie is like I'm not I just want to say like when we're laughing about this stuff it's di- for some reason for me it's different than like MST3K. I'm not like, oh, yeah. this is so shitty, I love it. Like there's something that I love about these movies. Like even the worst ones, like 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 Moonraker, which gets super duper silly. Like there's a part where a bird does a triple take in that movie. <laughs> and I love it. I love I love every moment. I'm not rolling my eyes. I'm not saying, oh, this is crap. But it's just like, it gives me such joy. All of these movies, like I don't care which one it is. Like I just, like I always like, I turn into the, 10 year old again excited about some some silly thing going on in a James Bond movie like, like when people critique the Bond movies and people are like ah oh, this one's better than that one and oh this one wasn't like a lot of people hated the last one Spectre but I'm like well, then you're not a Bond fan and you shouldn't go see it in the first place like if you like James Bond you're gonna like James Bond yeah and yeah, like, like, yeah. To me, it's, it's like it's like being into a sports team it's like I love the Seattle Mariners I don't care if they lose. I don't care if they win. It doesn't matter. That doesn't stop me from watching them and rooting for them every time. I still get the same amount of enjoyment from a ball game that they lose than one that they win because that's how much I like baseball and I like them. So it's the same thing with James Bond. It's like, this is my sports, basically. He's, yeah. my, he's my home team. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily say he's my home team, but I would echo that to me it's more like like Bond films are like a like a genre of song or like a standard that everyone yeah. like that like it's, it's like this is a very weird take on that standard and <laughs> if I weren't so into it I wouldn't be able to you know I I wouldn't be able to enjoy it the way I am if this was a Chuck Norris film with John Saxon we wouldn't even be talking about it. I wouldn't like, yeah, this would be a bad movie. Every Bond, I think every Bond film would be a bad movie if it weren't, to me, if it weren't a Bond film. Maybe not everyone, maybe that's, but in general, 
if they weren't Bond films, I might. I don't think I would watch most Bond films. And so that's. Yeah. So yeah. So like, like, well, let's let's stay let's stay focused on on Never Say Never Again because there is still so much. Yeah. Weirdness in this. Can we talk about Barbara Carrera? Oh, uh, she's so good in this movie. She's insane. She's so good. Like she, she is. She she plays the sort of the henchman, I guess, of Largo. Like she's not his girlfriend. She's just like bad guy henchman. She's like so, Jaws. She's the kill. She's the the killer we're supposed to be most afraid of, and she, and she kills is, you in some weird ways. <laughs> In weird ways, she kills like she. It's like seductive ways. Like it's kind of like, like she she she's like she seduces the guy while he's driving, and makes him crash his car. What now? How does she make him crash his car? <laughs> well, just like, you you say. <laughs> well, she she makes eyes at him, and he's like, Ugh, and then she throws a big snake in his car. <laughs> Yeah, and then the car crashes, and then she goes and she gets the snake, and then she blows up the car. It's like, why didn't you just blow up the car? I mean, why do you risk that poor snake? You traumatize that poor snake. And she, like, it definitely feels like she's having the best time of anybody in this whole movie. Like, she seems to get it more than anyone else. And she's just, like, super just fun and having fun and her clothes are outrageous oh like very eighties. Like, those pants those very, pants it's of like hers. a lot of like yeah baggy genie pants and like extreme angles and hats and i definitely feel like the way she is in this movie like kind of cackling and having a great time and the way that she is uh tough and sexy feels very much like a precursor to grace jones in a video kill after this movie like i feel like they must have taken that from this movie like whatever intern they sent to see this to do like their uh their recon of like okay what's the other bond movie like i think they took the note from this of barbara carrera we need someone like that in the next roger moore movie and that's why they got grace jones who's equally like uber 80 style tough sexy like just having a great time um really great <laughs> she's really great and this another difference between this and other bond movies is the sex scene that she has with, with bond on the boat I don't think you actually ever see Bond actually have sex with anybody in any of the official Bond movies, but in this one you do. Like, you actually see them having sex. Usually just, like, afterwards where he's, like, checking out the empty bottle of champagne and talking on the phone or saying stuff, but you never really get the moment of. And this movie actually has the moment of that she's having, like, some, you know, like, ecstasy with Bond on his boat as the boat is rocking back and forth and they're sliding back and forth on the floor of this ship. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to leave. There's now that we're on the boat and we're gonna. Uh, there's some stuff to talk about, but before we do, we just need. So, so there's there's things about this film that are crazy that I love, and they drive me nuts, like the like the video game. And then there are actual complaints I have. One complaint I have: they killed off Barbara Carrera too soon. That's when, like, that's basically yeah. the beginning of the movie being a bunch of running around and that was way too early she should have uh, she would she was so nuts that just let's just leave yeah. too much value on the cutting room floor like you, you definitely <laughs> notice it in the last 45 minutes you're like this this movie's missing something and it's her it's definitely her 
Yeah. She like she she to me makes this movie like extra good. Like if she wasn't in it, I wouldn't like it as much. Like she's so she's so much more interesting than Kim Basinger is in this movie. Like Kim Basinger's fine. She's pretty. She does a good job. Like I like Kim Basinger, but for the more interesting character, Fatima, Fatima, however you say it, Barbara Pereira's character is just so weird. And just like the part, the part where she makes James Bond write that she was the best lover he ever had. Like before she tries to kill him, she's like, "And you need to tell everybody in the world because everyone knows about you, James Bond, and how you're with ladies." But in this one, like you got to, you got to write in blood, like right on the pen, like right in pen in front of me that I was the greatest that you ever had. And I think this is a ridiculous scene in this movie where Sean Connors is like, okay, I guess I got to do that. And of course, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to give away what happens, but uh, he, uh, he does it. And she's like, that's, she's adamant that that happens <laughs> before he dies. Okay. So there's two, <laughs> two water-based questions I want to, I want to dig into one. Okay. So we know this is a remake of Thunderball, so there's going to be a lot of underwater shenanigans. What did you think about <laughs> Connery's slash Bond's battle with the shark? Bond movies have always had sharks in them. You know, like there's sharks in, uh, you know, in the books, like in the book for, I think it was Live and Let Die, they're dragged behind a boat with sharks chasing them. And uh, so like to me, like, you think of, like, Blofeld, like, having shark... And Little Bit of Die in the movie. Like, Yafit Kodo has his little shark tank. And in uh, Spy Who Loved Me, yep. uh, the bad guy has a shark tank. It's such a common... Like, sharks are such a part of James Bond, for whatever reason. I think because it's the Bahamas or the location where it takes place. But this movie has, you know, it's real shark with a stuntman. I, I love... And I'm a sucker for any movie that uses sharks in it. I love it. I love sharks. Okay. Like Shark Week, I'm there. I, I extend Shark Week an extra week because I'm such a shark fan. Yeah. I, I love sharks so much. I love Jaws 4, which is a terrible movie, but I love it because it's got sharks in it. Uh, it, it just, it's the part's kind of sad, though, because it looks like they maybe hurt the shark <laughs> in real life. Like they throw stuff on the shark, and the shark kind of stuck behind the thing. And it makes you wonder when you watch it, like, did they actually hurt that shark? I hope not. But uh, it definitely it does it does feel like pandering a little bit, but at the same time, who cares? It's cool to see James Bond be chased by sharks. Okay, so I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole. I'd love to do a whole episode on this film. Are you a fan of the film Shark, uh, the directed by Sam Fuller, starring Burt I've Reynolds? I've never seen that movie. Oh, I've never seen okay, it. Okay, yes, we'll do an episode on that from 1969. What a film! <laughs> a shark, a color shark noir. Starting, starring Fort Reynolds. Uh, it's really great. Um, okay, so, but then there's another thing. Okay, this was another one of my what the fuck movie moments. Uh, James Bond in uh, overalls with no with no shirt, <laughs> holding a fish up. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. that seems like something that the broccolis would never let happen. No, that is like, the most relaxed Bond I've ever seen in my life. Like, you always wondered, like, what does Bond look like on the weekends? But you never know, because in the, the official movies, it's always, like, he always is at the finest of states. Like, he's always wearing the finest of clothes, even, like, his, you know, like, underwear, like, his pajamas, like, on the beach, whatever. He's wearing, like, the finest of gentlemen's clothes and drinking the finest drinks. Like, you would never see James Bond eat a cheeseburger, you know? Like, this is not going to happen in a James Bond movie. Yet in this, 
He's holding stinky fish, wearing overalls, full like overalls with nothing underneath. Just like looking like someone from Yeehaw, with a shirtless man in overalls walking into a classy hotel. And like to think of like the opposite of like the the uh, Pierce Brosnan movie Dying Another Day. He is a prisoner of war in that movie for years, and he grows a big beard and he's tortured and he's beaten, and yet. When he walks into the hotel, he still has this class of, like, I'm this bearded, dirty Bond, but look at me. Like, I'm still James Bond. But in this, it really does look like James Bond is like, this is my time off, guys. Like, I'm not going to dress. <laughs> like, don't, like, I don't want to, like, just, I'm just a guy overalls here. And is it implied that he had those with him or that she on her boat? Have these overalls, and when she picks James Bond up out of the water. Well, let's. Okay. Yeah. So let's back this up. So, yeah, after his shark fight, he gets caught on a fishing line, uh, this woman's fishing line. And then he comes up and he makes some joke about, I don't know, I don't know, some some James Bond criticism. (laughs) And then she pulls him into the boat, and we imagine that they're going to like hook up. But no, it looks like what they did is they just did some deep, she gave him some overalls and they did some deep sea fishing because the next time we see him, he's there standing on the on the dock holding up this fish like a bunch of, like a couple of tourists. And it's so, it's so disorienting. It's so, it's one of the, like, that might be like the other things, but that one moment was just so like, no, 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 movie. You don't don't you don't know how to make a James Bond movie. But then at the same time you're like Yeah, yeah. It's so it's it's it's, bold. it's a great cinematic moment. I love I I think I love it. <laughs> it's also cool because they don't hide Connery's tattoos in this movie. Like you just totally see them. Like in the official Bond movies, they hide it, they cover it with makeup, but in here you straight up see his tattoos on his arm. And I like that. I think that makes James Bond cooler, that he's got tattoos. He makes you think, like, oh, he must have been in the, yeah, he's in the British Royal Navy and he got these tattoos when he was out doing that. And, like, yeah, you can have tattoos. And I think that's really cool. I think, is this one of the only movies where you see Sean Connery's tattoos? I'm trying to think of other ones where they're really clear and you can see them. I uh, I didn't even notice them in this one. Oh, really? I was too busy yeah. marveling <laughs> at the at Barbara Carrera's pants. <laughs> They were huge and shiny and, and, and disturbing. I also want to point out that this is the first Bond movie to have a black Felix lighter. The new ones do, um, and they're great. But like Bernie Casey as Felix lighter is awesome. Like I think that's such a great that's such great casting, and he's so cool in this. And I wish there was a movie just about him. And he's like the, when he first sees James Bond, he like throws something at him just to fuck with him. Just like scared, make James. And then another thing of James Bond being a whip. James Bond like kind of cowers down, like, "Oh, someone's throwing something at me." And it's Felix Leiter laughing yeah. him across the parking lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so since we're talking about great things in the movie, great casting, there is one. There was one, just flat out, like, "Oh my God, this is as good as anything in any James Bond movie ever." When James Bond meets his like his handler yeah. in New Orleans, I think, and it is a nineteen eighty three era Rowan Atkinson, <laughs> and oh, he's so 
he's so it's he's his perfect pre Mr. Bean post secret policeman's ball and secret policeman's other ball Monty Python adjacent stuff and probably right in the middle of uh of uh, Black Adder yeah. and that the film put him in it his one that one scene with Bond is so great I think feel like I gotta just throw that in here yeah what do you think of what well, let me just say one thing my this is my other criticism about the film they should have made him the villain he should have come back as the as like a sinister black adder type villain like you know almost like he could have been like mike it would have been like mike myers dr evil kind of thing like he could have been so great doing the flip from that sniveling wet-lipped like rowan atkinsy thing that he does at the beginning and then it turns out that he's been the guy behind it all along yeah like if they could have kept barbara carrera and lost Klaus Maria Brandauer and revealed Rowan Atkinson as the the villain. Yeah, this might be the greatest Bond movie of all time. But he does very well. The few things he's in, like the one we just heard, and at the end when we get to see him do a prat fall into a swimming pool, like he is right. Is he falling into a swimming pool at the end of the movie? <laughs> yeah, I, I, it was good. I just I I. I've always liked his. I'm always more a fan of his verbal comedy than. And everyone loves him as Mr. Bean, but I like when he talks. You know, and I wonder, like, if, like, have you seen the Johnny English movies? Those are really good. I saw, I saw one of them. Yeah, because that, uh, that's like, what if Rod Atkinson was James Bond, and you get three of those, right? And I'd like to think that, like, I wish that they just had this be this character later on. Like, I wish it was his name, Small Faucet. <laughs> that was Small Faucet was who Johnny English became, but he was like, I'm gonna. Spend many decades studying James Bond and beat James Bond. And what's great is whenever they show Ron Atkinson in this movie, he is the opposite of how Sean Connery looks. Like they're both hanging out in like the Bahamas, uh, and whenever they show Sean Connery, he's just beautiful and looking great. And then Ron Atkinson is just like sweaty and uncomfortable, <laughs> and his hair is just like is like messy and full of sweat. And he's like how like James Bond is how British people wish they looked in the in the heat and Ron Atkinson is how they actually look <laughs> you know, in humid climate. <laughs> um, so uh yeah th- that's a that's a great part. Um I could just keep going through there with uh things that were troubling to me. I I'll tell you another this is like a very small thing, but it, it might be it might be the point where the the movie broke my brain, where I was just like, no, no, come on, movie, no. There's a point where James Bond has to, like, he's he's knocked over this uh, statue head and kicked it over on these people. Yeah. Not very gracefully. No. It's sort of like he has to work really hard to, like, kick over this thing. Mm-hmm. So he's already, you know, like, it's, he's just been so diminished by this movie. And then he has to, di- he has to dive into the water to chase after Klaus Maria Brandauer, who's going to go blow up the world. But instead of diving into the water, he jumps into the water like a scared kid jumping off of a, into a quarry instead of like graceful James Bond, tr- commander James Bond. That jump, I'm going to put a clip of that. I'm going to cut that clip. I'm going to put it on our Instagram. That jump is like to me is the ultimate fuck you to James Bond and the broccoli legacy. Like this guy 
He looks more at home holding up that fish <laughs> than diving into the water after a bad guy, which is like the thing that you can kind of count on James Bond to do. You know, just be a little bit like er- Errol Flynn. Tie, put the knife in your mouth, dive in. Like you couldn't afford a stunt man. This, this, like, oh, I'm sorry. That part, that, that part, all the other things were, I get it. But that part really pissed me off. Did you notice this? Did that bother you at all? <laughs> no, I was still reeling for him destroying whatever ancient ruin that was to just crush a guy. <laughs> I was like, he's destroying them. like thousands of years old in culture. He's destroying these people's culture. So I didn't even pay attention to him jumping in the water. I was still like... Indiana shocked. Jones would be like, that should be in a museum. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Well, you know what? We haven't even talked about... We've sort of buried a very important piece of this. In who directed this yeah. this particular so, Bond film? So Urban Kirshner directed this movie, and he had directed Sean Connery before in 1966 in a movie called *A Fine Madness*. And he did *The Eyes of Laura Mars*, but he's most famous for being the guy who directed *The Empire Strikes Back*, like the most maybe the most loved sequel of all time, like the most loved continuation of a franchise ever. And it was just that was just two like three years before this, and so the he like I think this is the first movie he made after Empire Strikes Back, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So he made what many consider the the one of the greatest movies of all time, and then he made this afterwards. And like I, I'm sure they that's why they hired him. I'm sure they're like, well, this guy made that second Star Wars movie, and that was great. So let's bring him in for Bond, and maybe Connery had a say in it because of him being directed by him a few decades before. Um, and it's, he's an interesting filmmaker because he made real things. Like he did Up the Sandbox and Spies. But then he sort of became the sequel guy. Like he did The Return of a Man Called Horse. He did this movie. He did Empire Strikes Back. He did RoboCop 2 <laughs> of all movies. And it's just, he's just sort of like, he has no discernible style that I can tell other than he can make like a big movie it hits the buttons of what you want from that franchise and then adds more weirder, crazier stuff. Because, like, I don't know if you've ever seen RoboCop 2, but that movie gets real silly and very strange compared to the first RoboCop movie. And I never saw Return of a Man Called Horse, but in my mind there's got to be some stuff in there that if you were a fan of A Man Called Horse, you'd be like, huh, it's not what I remember from the first movie exactly. And he did that in Empire Strikes Back, but for better. Like, that movie's more dramatic and sad than the first story, maybe it works. Like that's when it worked for him. Uh, but he's, you know, what, what, is, what an odd, like he's not a fake filmmaker, like he's a real guy, but who knows like when he made this movie, how much say he had and how much was like Sean Connery and the producers and all these people, like with any Bond movie, where you're kind of like, you're not really making your vision come true, you're kind of just following the machine in a way. I'm going to I'm I'm just going to say I I think he's probably he's probably a very lucky director. But <laughs> just I cuz actually I do remember the TV I'm looking at his IMDb. I do remember the TV movie of Radon and Tebby and remember being thinking that that was pretty good. But other than that, that there's not a lot here, and you and to imagine that you went from directing The Empire Strikes Back in 1980, you follow it up with this, and then 
you don't work until like his next time he gets hired for to shoot an uh, an episode of Amazing Stories produced by George Lucas throwing him a bone. Uh-huh. And then RoboCop 2 and that's it. You know, like you directed one of the biggest films of all time. I think it just sounds like someone who got found out. Like he <laughs> he again, this film I would say I I don't feel like this film shows any kind of discerning eye. I feel like we can there's things to enjoy about it, but like like the way we were talking about the the way the rocket car the rocket things yeah. with uh like what do you what are those called hover car, what do you call those so something like a jetpack yeah the yeah the jet rocket fly th- flying things. Like that shot in a way that's just really uninspired and letting Bond jump instead of dive. These are things that there's just a lot of things in this movie that aren't that don't seem like, oh, well, that's a wild choice. That's cool. Yeah. It seems like a like, were you even paying attention? Like, it seems like a lazy choice. Like like there's something (laughs) very entitled about his direction, maybe in both, you know, maybe in Empire Strikes Back. It's like, okay, well, George is going to. George is going to micromanage this, so he's a perfect. So, you know, Irwin Kirshner is going to be on the set doing all this work while George is doing the stuff that George yeah. does. He doesn't like doing. Yeah, maybe work. he's just a really good boss and can like kind of control groups of people well, but he leaves the creative things to the other. Like I don't, I, I don't. I, I, he was sixty when he made this movie. I'm not making any excuses, but when I'm sixty. I might not give a shit about how jetpacks look when I make a movie. I might be like, yeah, you know, it's fine. As long as the movie's on time and under budget, we're okay. <laughs> Who directed Octopussy? Uh, that was, I think that was what John Glenn, right? Like he was like that was in the middle of him doing all the uh, all the Bond, all the Roger Moore movies that he was doing. And he's a great director. I think he's a very good Bond director. And he and he did um, a lot of the, the best. Of, of the of, because he was an editor, that's how we got the job. Like he edited uh, Moonraker and Spy Who Loved Me, and he was uh, editor on them. And then he became the director and started with For Your Eyes Only, Octopus, Video Kill, and The Living Daylights, and License to Kill. So he was sort of like the go-to director for those movies through the eighties. And he's great at it. And he he did a book he wrote, I think, about just his experiences of directing. Uh, Bond movies that people should check out. Um, I guess I feel like it's a it's a if we're only going to get one off brand Bond movie, it's kind of a disappointment that it didn't that you know it wasn't Cronenberg's <laughs> Bond or you know that it wasn't someone with a real unique interesting personal take on it. Like it's almost like you feel like Irvin Kershner would do better making a broccoli bond because there would be people there again mike the producers would be micromanaging the details and he would just organize it yeah he probably wasn't the best person to pick for this one i mean who would you like think about that era who like would it be i mean spielberg wouldn't have done it who was who's like an auteur of that era that you would like to have seen in 1983, huh. take on That's interesting. Because, um, I mean, few, a few have tried. Like, Tarantino was going to originally do Casino Real with Bronson, and that was going to be exciting. And then, of course, they don't want they don't want an auteur. 
Uh, occasionally one slips in, like a Michael Acted, um, but, like, there's not... Who in 83? Because, like, Spielberg is, of course, like, the choice you think in your head, but then he had Indiana Jones, which is basically his James Bond. So he didn't need James Bond, because he did Indiana Jones. Oh, you know Indiana who... Jones. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the Empire Strikes Back well. Lawrence Kasdan's Bond. <laughs> yeah, that could have been interesting. <laughs> I mean, because, like, I love, like you said, like, I wish it was crazier in a way. Like, I wish it was, like, David Lynch's Doom, where it's like, we're going to give this weirdo a big movie, and it's going to fail, but it's going to be unique in the movie we're still talking about. Um, but I just feel like, I just don't know, like, what, like, this is, this is going to John Landis's <laughs> Bond. Go like, with Eddie Murphy as James Bond. Brilliant. <laughs> No, they have to. You have to. You you still have to have Connery. That's the whole thing, right? It's got to be Connery. Yeah, I you know I I don't know. I don't know because like at the time, there's not a lot of big movies done by the small people yet. Like that was not a thing yet in the '80s. I think they were still just sort of like you can make a studio thing. Like '70s Hollywood is done, so they're not going to give William Friedkin a Bond movie. In 1983, or Martin Scorsese, or even Coppola. John Carpenter's Bond. That would have been interesting. That definitely would, and that could have—I could see that. Or, yeah, but like I think that would have been a Carpenter movie we would have talked about on the show. Still, I think that would have still been a, an anomaly. It would have been this weird, like, why does it? Why did they think that was an idea? I mean, like the, the thing that's about this movie that I like. If it is the one time that we get, oh, other than the Casino Royale spoof from 67 with Woody Allen, it's the only time we get a kind of a taste of what another Bond is like. And like, I wish that James Bond was like where Sherlock Holmes is right now, where like you could do your version of it and your take on it. And I wonder if the, the world will ever have that, like if the Broccoli family just has it so locked in for the next million years that we're not going to get these wild cards bonds like like i want to see like what's great about sherlock holmes is you can have your your will ferrell spoof you can have your big budget robert downey jr movie you can have your uh prestigious bbc show and it's all the same take on that so if you love sherlock holmes it's very exciting to get all these different versions of it but james bond we don't get that except for with this movie and this is the moment we get him in overalls is what we get that's all we're going to get right now because they're not allowing like wouldn't it be great if there was a James Bond TV show, like a BBC show now, done like Sherlock, I get the Sherlock guys to do it, get like Mark Gatiss to do it, and you have it like follow the books truthfully, which they never did. Like really follow what the books are like, or make it a period piece when the books are written, or just really explore more in depth the psyche of of this character of James Bond. But we aren't going to get that. We're just going to get Tom Hardy. And that's just kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm looking at, I'm trying to look at where Oliver Stone was at in 1983. He was, well, he was in 86, he did uh, Salvador. Yeah. So did he direct, he didn't direct Salvador. He just wrote, did he, no, he directed Salvador. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, he wasn't, they wouldn't have given him that. Uh, uh, no, I think, I think, I think Kasdan or Carpenter. Ooh, what about a Brian De Palma James Bond movie? I think that have been that would have been a thoroughly appropriate. <laughs> I think that would have been. He, those two guys are simpatico. <laughs> I, I think 
out of all the people you listen, I think John Landis is the one that I'm I'm most into the idea of like you just go in and make it like a real good comedy. Or what they should have done was bring back uh, James Coburn and do a Flint movie in the '80s directed by John Landis as a rival to Never Say Never Again and Octopussy. I I would have probably not watched that one either. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> But I would co- I would go back to it with love. I would go back to it with love. I feel like in 1983, I just my attention was elsewhere. Yeah. My film of 1980, my films of 1983 were like, you know, Risky Business 83. <laughs> yeah, I think Risky Business. Yeah, Risky Business, Trading Places, The Right Stuff, uh, The Outsiders. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, anything else we need to say about this film, Brian? I think if you, first of all, I, well, if you love Bond, you got to see it. Even if you hate Bond, well, if you are a Bond viewer, you should include. This should be in the canon, right? It is. It is. It is part of the canon, in my opinion. Like it's really silly that this movie's kind of brushed aside, and a part of it is because of the Broccoli family. Like they finally bought the rights back to Thunderbolt in this movie. And now you can't get a Blu-ray, but you can't get a DVD of it. <laughs> he made it unavailable. Like, you have to buy an older one that's out of print that's a little more expensive. But, like, this should be in the James Bond box set. Why not? Like, if you already own the rights now, is this any more silly than some of the sillier other Bond movies? Like, is it any more ridiculous? It's, no. It's like, why why treat this one poorly when the other ones aren't? Like, just group it all in. It's all the same world. It's all the same thing. It's okay, everybody. Let's watch Never Say Never Again and say that's a Bond movie. It is. Okay. Uh, do you think there is there a possibility? It's so funny because the other one is Octopussy. But do you feel like there's the possibility that embedded in Never Say Never Again is a sort of Rosebud-style inside dig at the broccolis <laughs> that they just can't... Like, it's just like... You, that's they're saying that my grandmother was a whore, but we, you know, what, you know, is there? So, do, you, do you think there's probably there's just something in it that is just personally offensive? Because it's you're right. If you own it, why not make the money off of it? Yeah, you know it. You know, but is there there is there something that is just so personal, such a personal effrontery of this film? Maybe they saw Sean Connery do that jump instead of dive and felt this like just. It's just like that was the last, the nail in the coffin of this film. Like, yeah, I wonder if they were just defended being like, how dare Sean Connery go against their family and make a rival James Bond movie? When he said he wouldn't come back, he like he left us and we had to get Roger Moore and we had to get George Lazenby and he dares do this movie in 1983 well, three months after a Roger Moore movie comes out. So maybe it's just like such a sad and like I bet it's like you, where they watch it and they just are going like, "Ah, oh, why is this? Why is he wearing overalls? Why is he on the steps?" And they just are so embarrassed by it because they didn't have the control that they just rather put it on a shelf and not uh, deal with it anymore. <laughs> but it's for the people. It's not their movie. It is a people's movie. Just put it out already. Just put a nice Blu-ray. Uh, put it with the other Bond movies on Blu-ray for the world to enjoy. Yeah. Stop being wrong, world. Make this movie more available. Uh, uh, there are. Uh, I just saw a thing. It said there's seven new James Bond podcasts. There's a lot of James Bond podcasts. I just. I gotta read some names here. 
There's, okay, James Bond Radio, another James Bond podcast, The Odd Job Pod, uh, Bond and Beyond, From Tailors with Love, The James Bond Complex, James Bonding, The Bond Experience, The Bond Brain, Being James Bond, Schmirsch Pod? I don't know what that has to do. And Bond Finger. Wait, there's more. It's just, there's so many Bond podcasts. <laughs> Male Bonding. <laughs> uh, Trey Bond. The James Bond Minute. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, you know what? A there's a lot of Bond podcasts out there. Talk to him. <laughs> yeah. Does Connery still give interviews? No, he's been long retired and long gone. I don't reckon it's Sean Connery. <laughs> Oh, you know what? You know, that that is one. There's one last piece that we didn't really get into, and it's just worth mentioning. And maybe it's inspiring or inspirational. I hate when people say inspiring when they mean inspirational. It's It may be inspirational that, I don't know, Connery was like in his early 50s maybe when he made this movie, mm-hmm. late 40s. And just a few years later, he seems so much stronger more charismatic and more virile, like in the untouchables in almost everything he does for the next 10 years. Yeah. And I just like the idea that this James Bond, who seems so old and so weak (laughs) is not, is like, is really just sort of like this launching pad for what's going to be that last big push of Connery and things like hunt for red October, where he's just, he's so has so much authority. Like, if they had brought back a truly old Bond, again, might have been better. Like, if he had really just been like, I'm the old Bond. <laughs> and gave him a young Bond to push around, maybe played by Rowan Atkinson. He could have, yeah. <laughs> now, that would be a fun movie. Sort of like, uh, like um, what's the one, The Freshman? Oh, with, yeah. Brand, uh, with Brando and Broderick. <laughs> But, you know, maybe that's a testament of what a good actor Sean Connery is. He was just like, I want to play this Bond this week, and I'm going to play it old, even though I'm not, even though I'm going to totally hit a home run with the Untouchables a few years later and be this total badass. Like, in this one, I'm going to be falling down. I'm going to be thrown in the shells. I'm going to die poorly. Like, it's all in his head as a character. Like, it's just what he's bringing to this. And it's a it's it's not a – it's not – maybe – I hope we're far enough from his passing so that this doesn't – isn't taken too poorly, but it's not – a very uh, it doesn't reflect very well on John Saxon that Sean Connery's idea of making himself weak is to play the role as John Saxon. <laughs> okay, I I think we've I think we've skirted the line of I I feel like I've skirted the line of being extremely positive. I just hope people know I'm enjoying all of the feelings I have about this movie. Bond movie, you know, there's lasers, yeah. there's sharks, there's like ridiculous names, you know, but like, there's this such, I, I think you and I both have such a love for James Bond, and I'm never disappointed, I'm like, I'm always going to be into it, like, I'm going to watch Never Say Never Again another 20 times in my life, I'm sure, I'm sure of it, <laughs> just because, like, this is, this is what I do, these are my favorite movies, like, I... Love the movie. I love the James Bond movies more than any other fun movie. It's just sort of how people I think think of Star Wars or whatever. That's what Bond is for me, and I will apologize for all of them 
this will probably be the only episode we do for one. I think it makes sense. But I mean, if up to me, we can just cover all the ones that people shit on. But I think this is that's what's so special about Never Say Never Again. Is it's such an odd, odd, weird version of a, of a of a James Bond movie. Well, let's uh, let's let's leave it at that. Oh, jeez. I got your dogs going crazy. Hi, everybody. Sorry to interrupt this show that you're probably enjoying, but I'm comedian Kevin Dombrowski, who you probably don't know. Joined weekly by my producer, Adam, a little bit more well-known than me, Hineker. Say hi, Adam. True. He's got a point. Uh, dial it back. Each episode, I'll sit down with a very famous comedian that you probably do know. And if they're not famous, you probably know them anyway. And we'll break down what's happening in the world by making fun of all of it. This is Just Joking on the Paperhouse Network. No interviews, no arguments, just jokes. Now, back to your show that you were already enjoying. So, we can find you, Mr. Jones, on the Radio 8-Ball show. And in fact, you were your own guest recently. How cool and special is that? Uh, well, that usually happens when I can't get a hold of the guests that I want. But, and I, oh, it's funny. I always feel like those are the most depressing episodes. But then people find them really funny. So, uh, it'll be it'll be well in the rearview mirror, and we will know how it all turned out. But uh, this most recent episode, I, it was interrupted by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg which obviously mm-hmm. necessitated a question and a reading and mm-hmm. uh, it came up pretty good and it was a weird and rough day, but it was nice to be doing some musical divination when, uh, you know, when history happens, it's nice to be, to have some way to transform it into some, some kind of art or expression. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can find that at the radio eight ball at radio eight ball.com. All one word with the number eight and wherever you get your podcasts, and you can also, you know, I, I like listening to Radio 8 Ball, but what I really like listening to is the director's wall with <laughs> you, Brian, and your co-host, AJ Gonzalez. You are just back from NOM <laughs> and uh, having done your epic Apocalypse Now episode. Man. I listened to it. You you gave an, you get, you guys uh, got into talking about how uh, Apocalypse Now is a horror film that people don't think of as a horror film, which obviously is a topic that uh, that we covered on this in relation uh-huh. to on this podcast in relation to Rules of Attraction and and Bob Roberts. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was a great that was a that was a great episode. Thank you. And did you were there any pieces like is there anything that you feel like you didn't get to say about Apocalypse Now on that episode? No. I- Everything I had, AJ said he had another like 20 pages of notes, and so we could totally go back and do another. But I'm glad to be, I think watching that, uh, I'm, a, I'm good, and I'm ready to move onward into the, to, in my opinion, the more interesting topo stuff, uh, the stuff I'm more, even more excited about, the more personal, weird little stuff, and the failures that aren't failures in my mind, but like creative, uh, you know, it, it's exciting creative things that he did. So I'm I'm ready for one from the heart. I'm ready to get out of Nam and go to Las Vegas with some uh, heartbreak. Yeah, and you know I I mentioned it to you, and I guess I'll just throw it out here. I recently watched uh, the film The Ugly American from 1963, starring Marlon Brando, 
and I really had some uh, heavy-duty Apocalypse Now adjacent vibes to it. And I'd love to talk with you and AJ about that at some point. It's a film that really just... I, I had always heard was one of the bad and boring Brando films, but it is anything but. And considering it was made in 1963, it really accurately depicted what was going to happen in Vietnam in this film, in the, the fictional country of Sarkhan. And there are just there's scenes in it where Brando is talking about a Thathans, and you're like, oh, my God, this you got to... <laughs> There's even more. There's even more that this uh, that this apocalypse now film is standing on top of. So, uh, yeah, if people are are really getting into their apocalypse now and they listen to the the uh, the full, what was it two and a half three hour podcast that you guys did? Um, it's, it's three hours. Three hours. We wanted to go as long as one of the versions of the movie. So. And then once you've done all that, maybe go check out the ugly american and maybe we'll maybe someday we'll talk about it on this show we'll devote an episode to it it certainly is a film that uh we could find some ways that the world is wrong about great so uh yeah and thanks a lot to everyone who's just who's been following us obviously we record these well in advance of when they come out but already this show is just blowing up people we have copycats Rotten Tomatoes and you know we got people yeah it was just like people crawling out of the woodwork to get a hold of the of our uh, special you know logo uh, our, our face masks with our logo on them uh, Paper House has become one of the biggest podcast networks in the world um, <laughs> these are all things that could happen by by we don't November. know yeah we don't know uh uh, we also, uh, please, if you, if you do enjoy the show, please give us good ratings and reviews. It helps people find us. You can contact us with your questions, your comments, your concerns, your quandaries at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can find our website, obviously, theworldiswrongpodcast.com. And, and next week... Next week, we're going to be getting into two films. This is our, our first double shot. Yeah. We're going to be covering the films Incident at Oglala and Thunderheart from Michael Apted, who would go on to direct one of the, you know, one of the more beloved, is it one of the more beloved Bond films? No, but no. for me, it is. The world is not enough. <laughs> Uh, yeah. the one of the Pierce Brosnan Bond films, and uh, but yes, we we'll, we'll be talking about a lot about Michael Apted and about these two important films, Thunderheart and the documentary Incident at Oglala. Then, anything, any last things you want to tell the audience? No, this is great. I'm excited to get into some Apted. Okay, well, um, you know the you know you know the drill, folks. Wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. I say, Mr. Bond! Catch you later, perhaps. Right. Nigel Smallfoot. 
British Embassy, Nassau. How'd you do, Nigel? Sorry, I'm late. But as you're one of these undercover Johnnies, I took a precaution of not being followed. And that's why you shouted my name across the harbor. Oh, God, did I? Oh, I'm sorry. Damn! Damn! Sorry, I'm rather new to all this. What's the score with Largo? Oh, he's highly visible in these parts. Enormously wealthy. Owns the biggest boat in the Caribbean. Spends a lot of his time at a place called Bluebeard Reef. Marine archaeology, I gather. You've met him? Oh, yes, he's charming. I mean, foreign. But charming nonetheless. He donates a lot of money to worthy causes. Um, he built a maritime museum and a new wing for the orphanage. I'm sure he's very kind to his mother. Don't know his mother. You're not going to make any trouble, are you, Mr. Barton? Let's face it, your reputation has preceded you. Do I look like the sort of man who would make trouble? Well, yes, frankly. And you're going to jeopardize the tourist trade if you start going around killing people. Nigel, please, just go back to your desk. Find out where Largo's boat is at the moment. Call me later. I'll be at my hotel. Jolly good. I'll get on to that at once. And take full advantage of the natural cover. Radio 8 Ball. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show.